Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi there, this is Jillian on Love, and I'm on a mission to teach people how to completely transform their romantic relationships by first transforming the relationship they have with themselves. So whether you're in a relationship, single or heartbroken, I've got you covered. I'm Jillian Tarecki, certified relationship coach and teacher with over 20 years experience helping people transform their relationship with themselves through their bodies, breath, and minds. I have coached and taught thousands of people to become better versions of themselves and change the way they show up for and within their love lives. Today's episode is a really special one. I interviewed someone who, let's just say that I think that you are going to get tremendous value from this interview. And yeah, I think it's going to help a lot. I think it's going to shed a ton of light. And I just cannot wait for you to listen to it. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I interview Connor Beaton, who is the founder of Man Talks, an international organization focused on improving the lives, relationships, and leadership of men. Connor is also an international speaker, author of the best-selling book Men's Work, host of a top-ranked podcast, and works with men who are looking to lead themselves and their lives more effectively. Hallelujah. Since founding Man Talks, Connor has spoken on stage at TEDx with Lewis Howes, Gary Vaynerchuk, Daniel Laporte, and has been featured on platforms like the United Nations, Forbes, Huffington Post, The Good Men Project, CBC, and The National Post. We get into a lot here, including how to communicate with someone, a man who you may be in a relationship with, who you think is either addicted to porn, watching too much porn, or looking at provocative accounts. He talks about what really porn addiction is, among many, many, many other things, and debunking some myths around masculine and feminine energy. So this is a big one. So here we go. Enjoy. Connor Beaton. Hi, Connor. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very happy to have you. I've been following you for a while, and I think you're doing such great work. And so I was very excited to have this conversation with you. I'm going to just jump right in, if I can, mm -hmm. with a question that I don't think is asked enough. So I'm going to ask it. How would you define masculinity? Hmm. 
You know, I think this is one of those questions that has been getting a lot of attention over the last four or five years, six years. And what's interesting is the breadth of definitions that people have. You know, if you go online and you move into the sort of quote unquote sacred spiritual circles, you're going to get a definition. If you move into content that's more oriented towards more patriotic leaning Americans, you're going to get a different definition. If you lean into the therapeutic circles, you're going to get a different definition. And so, honestly, I think that the definition is maybe not less relevant, but maybe less important than has been presented. Because what I often see happening is people will put out a definition and that then becomes the fodder for the viewer or the listener or the person observing to either check out from the rest of what that person's saying or becomes the thing for them to, in their head, argue with. <laughs> <laughs> or become combative about. But, you know, I, I think that there's a couple of things that I'll say. One is I think masculinity, much like femininity, is an amoral principle. It's an amoral characteristic or energetic trait that exists within all of us. And when I say amoral, I mean it's neither good or bad. And if we look at something like masculinity or femininity, and our immediate response is that it's good or bad, then that says more about us as an individual and our own psyche than masculinity itself. Agreed. So, so to define it, I would say first and foremost, it's amoral. Secondly, I would say that it is an energetic and psychological quality characteristic that's built up of a few different principles. For the most part, if you look at different myths cross-culturally, if you look at different stories cross-culturally throughout history. Some of those principles include things like protection. They include things like providing. They include things like integrity and honesty and valor and bravery. And bravery in the, in, in the face of resistance and obstacles. And I think that last piece is pretty important when it comes to what a lot of us as men are being asked to do and step into in our current culture and our current world, which is bravery in the face of obstacles and, uh, and pushback. So I think those are some of the ways in which that I would define masculinity. How that gets presented within each individual is a little bit different. And then lastly, I would say that there's sort of qualities that are attached to masculinity, like creating direction. I think that when a man or a woman is embodying more of that masculine nature, there is a quality of direction that is embodied by them. You know, there's something about them that it's clear where they're going or what they want to do or what they're not willing to engage with. So that provides for them and for the people around them a kind of clarity of direction. So I think those are some of the pieces that I would say are associated with masculinity and we could talk about where that comes from, like Carl Jung's framework around the anima and the animus is somewhat useful because you can see these energetic polarities showing up 
across myths and stories, across religions, across cultures. So whether you want to call it masculine and feminine or anima and animus or yin and yang or go and flow, whatever word you want sun to give moon. to the polarity. Yeah, sun and moon, you know, uh, they are their tenants or characteristics that are very much baked into us. And the last thing I'll say is within the alchemical traditions, somebody like Hermes Trismegistus talked quite a bit about how gender, masculine and feminine is inherent to reality. It's actually a, a baked in part of reality. And, you know, whether or not that's true is yeah, wildly so, speculative, right. but- because here's the reason why I asked is because, especially in the relationship world, dating world, there's a lot of dogma now out there and fear yeah. with people. Oh, my God, am I not for women? How do I be more in my feminine? And I want a masculine and people saying I want a masculine man or someone saying that they want a feminine woman. I think that I'm not hearing too many people saying like, I want a really feminine woman. I think that women are craving is some of the qualities that you associate with masculinity, such as bravery and direction and valor. But I think that, you know, as someone, as you described it as polarity and sun and moon and yin and yang, as someone who has studied yoga, which is really the yoking of the yin and the yang and the sun and the moon to create a sense of embodiment of wholeness, right? And this is something that I've been personally studying for over 25 years. And so I think that where people get lost, which is why I asked you this, and I think it's so important to clarify is that we have both in us, regardless if you're a man or a woman or how you were born, right? We have both. And I think that what I try to teach my students and clients is that it's about learning how to access the different parts of yourself, which may include the masculine and the feminine, as well as other characterological traits, right? Access the various parts of yourself in ways that are the most useful and efficacious and beneficial. So that if you are a human being and you have an obstacle that has arisen on your path, that's come into your life, there's a resistance, there's a blockage. You will have to dig deep within yourself to find the courage and the bravery to overcome that obstacle. So one might argue that in that moment, you would have to be digging deep into, in yoga would be represented by the sun, the mm -hmm. sun part of you to meet that resistance. And then there's the part where instead of rising to the challenge of resistance, we actually have to surrender and go with the flow with it. And that would actually represent more of the moon energy, which is surrender and letting go. And what would, I think, in spiritual circles, whatnot, would be re referred to as the feminine energy. And so that's what I try to teach. I just find it troubling. And I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts about this, where people are really misunderstanding what it means to be feminine and what it means to be masculine. But yet it's such an important conversation, because if I take it to the world of dating, for example, 
let's say you're a woman and you prefer to be pursued and you're a man and you actually prefer to be the pursuer. When both people are stepping into the role that they feel most comfortable in, what ensues between the two people is actually a really beautiful dance but people get so confused by it. Like if you're in your feminine, you can't be assertive. If you're in your masculine, you can't let go. And I think that's sort of part of the work is I know that you mostly help men to kind of understand what it is to really own themselves. Because I think at the end of the day, I know I'm sort of bringing up a lot right now, but I think at the end of the day, as I continue to study psychology and relationships and relational dynamics and attraction and chemistry and love, I think that what is most attractive to people, regardless of whether you are masculine or feminine, is someone who owns themselves, someone who knows themselves, someone Mm -hmm. who has actually some direction because i don't think that you know of course there's the people who the women for example who fall in love with people who are a mess and they want to be the rescuer and then you've got the men who fall in love with a mess who's like a broken bird and they want to be there so there's all these kind of like pathologies and patterns but i think at the end of the day what we want to become is to feel more whole to own who we are and to also be attracted to those who own who they are. And I think that that is almost a more important conversation than getting really caught up in the minutia of what's masculine and what's feminine. Though, I do think that a lot of relationships, straight and gay, break down when there is a lack of polarity, right? When there... Right. And it's like, and it's not that one person has to always be in the feminine and the other person always has to be in the masculine. But if you want to sustain physical attraction, passion for each other, the motivation to meet each other's needs, you know, not the friendship part, which I think is a very important part of relationship, by the way, but the passion part, you need polarity. So how do you fit that into the conversation without people getting so obsessive about these two energies within us. Yeah. I like the notion of the middle way in Buddhism, but you know, I think it's one of those things where having the structure and the framework is and can be incredibly helpful to be able to say these qualities are masculine. These qualities are feminine. That can be incredibly helpful especially if you're someone who's on the journey of a kind of reclamation of authenticity, which I think is what pretty much all spiritual and therapeutic modalities are really about. It's like, how do you reclaim a sense of your authenticity? Because that's usually what has been lost somewhere along the way in our childhood development or going through school. We've, we've detached from a sense of this is who I am in the world or this is what's important to me, or this is what I want to embody. So the frameworks can be very helpful. I think when they become sort of religious fervor, then there's something to maybe question when it's the, you know, I have to act this way in order to be masculine. It becomes super rigid and sort of a doctrine. 
then we move from something that is authentic to us and something that we're embodying and something that we're living that's helping us that's helping us on the path towards our own sense of authenticity and then it becomes more of this sort of doctrine that we have to live out which can be very rigid and confining which can repeat what we felt as kids so i think that there is a happy medium in there and i think that it can be very helpful i think where it kind of gets lost is i hear people using the language in their relationship of like oh you just need to be more masculine in these conversations or you need to be more feminine so what does that like be more specific <laughs> yeah. you know do you need your partner to be more assertive do you need them to stand up to you do you need them to set a boundary do you need them to soften a little bit because they're just being so harsh and closed off yes you know like actually moving more into the descriptive language that's underneath the moniker of masculine and feminine is going to serve everybody in a much deeper way. So yes. that's where I think it's helpful. I'm interested to see where you want to go from here, but yeah. I think that's very true because I think it's very emasculating to say I want him to be more masculine. And I think it's very, I mean, what would be the equivalent to emasculating for a woman? First of all, it doesn't help. I want you to be more masculine or I wish they were more feminine. That's not helpful. I think you're spot on. It's like, no, what is it that you actually need? Do you need to be received more? Do you need more guidance to be more specific? I think that's well said. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. There are times in life where we can feel incredibly uncertain, like for example, a breakup or a job change or wanting to move, you know, going through a big transition in your life. And I know personally when I've gone through those huge transitions or gone through really difficult times, I have needed someone to talk to. And that's where therapy has been just a huge help to me personally. Because the reality is, is that sometimes in life we're faced with a lot of difficult decisions. And which choice to make and the path forward isn't really always that clear. And so being able to talk to someone who is totally objective, where they can help you find the best solution for you, the best path forward, it's just really important. Life is filled with a lot of important decisions and tough choices. And if we're just trying to figure them out on our own, we end up ruminating, getting in our heads, and then we end up feeling really stuck. And it's in that place that we feel really stuck that we start to feel very overwhelmed and it can actually lead to a lot of anxiety and depression. So whether you're dealing with decisions around career or relationship or literally anything else, therapy can help you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate those decisions so that you can actually move forward with excitement, looking forward to the future. And so I can't really recommend it enough. I think that it's something that everyone should experience at least at one stage of their life just to talk to someone in therapy. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. First of all, it's entirely online. So it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You would just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best thing is that you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge because 
it's important just like any other relationship that there's a rapport and there's a chemistry between you and the therapist. You have to feel really comfortable with them. So having that added bonus of being able to switch therapists at any time and not be charged for that is so important. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash onlove today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash onlove. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Is it true? And I'm speaking from a heteronormative perspective right now with this question in particular. I have a theory about this, but I'm curious about yours. Is it true that men are threatened by a strong woman? It really depends on the man. Yes. You know, I think it really depends on the man. I think in a non-harsh and judgmental way. And I think it also depends on the woman because I'm going to clarify two things here. So one, I think it depends on the man because a man who hasn't fully met his insecurities and understands his own inferior nature is probably going to be riled up by her. And then on the other side of it, it depends on how you're defining strong woman. Because we have this tendency in our modern culture to say that when a woman is being completely standoffish and confrontational and unwavering and unmoving, that's how somehow strong. Which is not. That's insecure. Which is not. But that has become pedestaled within our culture in some areas. And so it's become commonplace to say, oh, you know, look at her. She's such a strong woman. When there's actually no room for any type of discourse or relationship. And the, the relational nature of that woman has broken down entirely. And if we saw a man doing that exact same thing, we wouldn't call him a strong man because he's maybe being unreasonable or he's using his dominance in some way or his power in some yes. way that isn't actually respectful or helpful. So I, I think it really depends where I think men get tripped up is that I mean, listen, like the world has changed in the West. You know, we went from 1960, 1970, I think it was, I think it was 1972, if I'm not mistaken, where the research showed that 11% of households, uh, women were the primary breadwinners. So they were the primary financial earners to 2020, where 42% of American households had women as the primary breadwinners. And so the dynamics, the relational dynamics within our society and our culture has radically changed in a very short period of time where a lot of men's roles and a lot of women's roles have dramatically shifted. I'm not saying that this is bad, by the way. Like progress is, is generally no, no, a pretty no, good thing. No, no, definitely not. It's just, it's reality and it's something we have to look at for sure. Yeah, and the consequence of that is you know, a lot of men are trying to figure out where their place is, where their role is within a relationship, within a household, within a family system, because for a very long time, their role was to be the provider. Mm -hmm. And if you're a man who's making 80 grand or 60 grand, and you meet a woman who's making 150 or 250, and all of a sudden you start dating, that dynamic within the relationship can be quite confronting. Because a man can have grown up, depending on where he's from, in a culture that has told him, you need to be the provider. And so what's baked into a lot of men's psyches is, okay, I need to be the, that's my primary thing. 
And so a lot of the stuff that happens in these, in relationships where, you know, I hear these conversations of like, oh, he was just afraid of me or he couldn't handle me or whatever the case was. Sometimes it's just a shift in the relational dynamic between the two people where maybe that man's never dated somebody that earns more than him. Maybe that woman's never dated somebody that earns less than him. Or maybe he felt like, to your point, that he didn't really have much to add to her life. Yeah. And I think the maybe the last piece, that, that could be a part of it because men do want to contribute. I would say that the majority of men want to know that they can provide something. And so I've said this as loud as I can on as many platforms as I can, but one of the most detrimental things for a woman to say to a man in a relationship is, I don't need you. It's one of the most damaging things because then his immediate response is, well, then why am I here? Because for most men, we recognize that on some level, if we're choosing to be with you, we need you. We might need you for support, for love, for kindness, for care, for nurturing, for physical connection, for exploring life and adventuring, but we need you on some level. And that need isn't a neediness. It's not a codependency. It's that we are, as human beings, social creatures who actually need one another, period. No, 100%. <laughs> in order for our survival. 100%. And I'll give some insight into the woman's psychology when she's saying things like that, because one of the things that this was even partly my journey, take a woman who, let's say, low self-esteem, which I think is epidemic right now, particularly with women. I know men, trust me, I know men mm. struggle with it too, because I work with a lot of men, but it's really epidemic with women. Let's say low self-worth, low self-esteem. And so in her journey in trying to become more whole, if you will, in her journey to become more whole, she's trying to figure out how to be in the world not so dependent on a partner, particularly yeah. for the for what we're talking about on a man. One of the things that I teach women is I have no judgment if you want to be with a man who makes more money than you and makes a lot of money. I have zero judgment about that, like more power to you. But you have to have your own money because worst thing is that you become dependent on a man and then he leaves you and you have nothing. And let me tell you something, even though Things have changed, to your point, radically in the last 50, 70 years. That story of the woman who her man divorces her and she's left with nothing is still very much a story mm -hmm. that circulates today. And so I think that it's like the pendulum, which, you know, we're trying to find, like, to your point, the middle way. And, and before you find that middle way, there's a lot of swaying of the pendulum. And I think that women are trying to get to this place where they don't feel so needy. They don't feel so desperate. They don't feel so dependent. Mm -hmm. And then the pendulum swings to, well, I don't need you. And it's like, well, okay, well, that's the worst thing, like you said, that a man can hear. It's totally emasculating. It gives him no role in your life. It definitely does not create polarity at all. So this is just one of the many ways in which we're just all getting confused, right? Because mm. the journey for a woman who may have not felt so independent and embodied is the journey towards feeling 
empowered, right? And part of that empowerment is I don't need a man to survive, but to infuse it with, okay, let's not even make it, you know, man, woman. It's like you can be incredibly independent and have your own back and not quote unquote need anyone. But there is something that a partner is going to give you that you can't give yourself. And it's mm-hmm. not just sex, but that's part of it. It's more than that. And I think that being able to, yeah, it just it's, it can be really complicated. And I, I agree with you. I don't think that walled off, closed off woman is a strong woman. And I do think, like you said, it really does depend on a man and his insecurities and securities. This episode is brought to you by AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Now, I don't like taking supplements. I don't like taking a bunch of pills and then having to remember when to take it. It actually stresses me out. But I also know that I need more nutrients. I try to get it from my food, but you know, you can't always get it all that you need from your food. And I need an extra boost. I need to sleep better. I always am looking for things to just make me feel more energized during the day and to, like I said, sleep better at night and to really improve my hair, skin, and nails. I mean, that's really important to me. And I like to take vitamins through powder form. I like to put something in water and drink it (laughs) as long as it doesn't taste horrible. And that's where AG1 comes in. I drink AG1 in the morning, first thing, because that's when I know that I'm just going to get it done. And it gives you a lot of things to give you energy. And so doing it first thing in the morning just helps me get ready for my day and like I'm doing something really good for my body. And like I said, it's very hard for me to keep up with a supplement routine. I hate taking a bunch of pills. I find them hard to digest and... I often find that I don't assimilate them. Like my body doesn't assimilate them as much. Like I don't absorb it. And so then I feel like I'm just wasting money. But since I've been drinking AG1, I have noticed an overall feeling of great health. I feel more energy. My gut feels better. My nails are like growing like crazy and I'm sleeping better. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that delivers nutrients to support your whole body. And it basically replaces your multivitamin and your probiotic and actually more in one simple drink. And that's what I love. So why would you take a bunch of different things and have to remember what time to take and what to take it with food or not with food when you can just mix one scoop of powder and water once a day? It was designed with ease in mind so that you don't have to be like me, (laughs) stressing about when you're going to take your supplements to the point where then you just end up taking nothing. So these are science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients. AG1 helps you build your health foundation first. I've come to love and trust AG1. And just so you know, every scoop has about 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients of high quality that give me the major benefit of gut support, mood support, energy, and better hair, skin, and nails. It's delivered to me every month. So it's actually been very super easy to make it into a daily habit. So if you want to take ownership of your health, Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first 
purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Jillian on love. That's drinkag1.com slash Jillian on love. The Jillian on love is all caps. Check it out. What is the biggest struggle that you believe men face today, at least in our culture? And how does that differ from the man, you know, 50, 75 years ago, if at all? I kind of wrote about part of this in my book. And it's interesting because we were talking about masculinity before, and I very specifically did not define masculinity. You know, I wrote this book called Men's Work. And that's one of the things that I did straight out the gates was like, I'm not going to define men's work Hence or like tell you what it is. I question in the beginning, yeah, just because I thought it would be an know, interesting segue yeah. into things. <laughs> yeah, I think, it's, I think it's quite a bit different. I think there's sort of three prongs. One of them is the degradation and the devaluing of men and masculinity in our culture this notion that has become pervasive that men aren't necessary, men aren't needed, men are dangerous, men are toxic, you know. And the way that it often gets talked about in certain circles is that men really are the enemy. And I get where it's coming from. You know, I've worked with a lot of couples. I've worked with a lot of women over the years. My wife is a marriage and family therapist. We've worked with a lot of couples and I hear stories of fathers and ex-husbands and and whatnot. And so I understand where the anger and the hurt is coming from. And I don't think that was something that our grandfathers or even our fathers dealt with. You know, I don't think that our grandfathers or fathers or their fathers walked the earth questioning whether or not they were relevant and wanted. That part at a just sort of cultural systemic layer is there. And then outside of that, I think the major things that are facing men, the big one is isolation. The really big one is isolation. And that can be isolation from social programs. That can be isolation from proper education programs. That can be isolation from therapeutic modalities and therapeutic support. Or, which is the big one, it can just be isolation from the people around them. So, you know, there's a lot of research that's coming out now that a couple of things. One, more men are living at home than are living with a significant other between the ages of 18 and 29. So there living are more at men home, living you at mean home. With their parents? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Than with a significant other. Why? That's the first time it's ever happened. I mean, I think it's economic factors. I think that the dating landscape has dramatically changed. Less men are going to college than ever before. So the number of men that are graduating college by 2040, it will have completely inversed from 1960. So in 1960, you had two men graduating for every one woman. And by 2040, we will have two women graduating for every one man. So there are less men going to college than ever before. There are more men living at home. There are less men that are engaged in relationships truly there's a higher rate of men that aren't looking for work in primary age ranges. So there's something like 7 million men that are in a primary working age, which is 24 to 55 that aren't working. And they're not looking for work. And then they're not looking for work. That's not good. It is not good. And most of those guys are, are spending 2000 hours a year on average um, on a screen, right? So they're playing video games, they're watching TV, they're checked out on porn or YouTube or whatever it is. 
So a lot of men have slowly started to check out from society and check out from relationships. And one of the main places that you can see this is within the data around friendships, which is, I think it was, again, in the 1960s, 1970s, the average guy had about six close friends, and today it's one or two. And there is 15% of men in America that can't identify one close friend. So the rate of men that are just completely isolated is higher than it has ever been before. And again, we could sort of talk about theories of some of these things that are, you know, sort of played into this. I think Richard Reeves, who wrote a book called On Boys and Men, of mm-hmm. Boys and Men, I had him on my show, is really wonderful. I know the book. And he talks about how a lot of boys struggle going into school, that our prefrontal cortex actually develops later than young girls. So when girls get into school, I mean, I can see this in my son, right? I have a a son who's 27 months and his speech is quite delayed. So he's barely talking. Mm -hmm. And we were hanging out at the farmer's market on Sunday and we saw this little girl and (laughs) she was the exact same age, full sentences. She's got it dialed in, you know, communicating everything. I think that's why in grade school, we're just like, yeah, girls just mature faster than boys. It's like when I was in high school, like I just remember I would always date older guys. And then the guys in my grade thought that I was like obnoxious for not dating them. I'm like, you haven't even gone through puberty. I went through puberty three years ago. Like, how can I possibly date you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I get it. I mean, I was, you know, I was a bit of a goofball in high school and junior high. I still managed to do okay here and there. But I think, you know, I, I think for the majority of boys, we have an education system that sort of ironically was developed for young boys to go through, was developed for boys to go through that then, you know, girls entered into the education system and really flourished. And what we've realized is that system actually isn't really great for young boys, period. The sitting still, the memorize and regurgitate and all these sort of things. So that's a little bit of a side tangent, but I think one of the main things that men are dealing with is isolation. And I wrote about this, I called it the one rule of men in my book, which is the same rule as Fight Club. First rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The one rule of men is you do not talk about what it's like to be a man who is struggling, who is suffering, who's going through a divorce, who's having a hard time at work, who's having a hard time with the kids, you know, whose mother just passed, whose father is dying of cancer. You just don't talk about that shit. And so what is really crippling a lot of men is they don't have the social structure in place to really support them when hard times start to show up in their life. So I think that's honestly one of the biggest ones. And then I would say the last one is just to dovetail off that is the proper healthy social structures with other men, really healthy male relationships. Because a lot of the men that I work with, like I just led a men's weekend for 30 guys in Northern California. And a lot of those men were there with problems that were showing up in their life, right? Problems that were showing up in their sex life or their marriage conflict, you know, with their partner or, you know, stuff that was going on in their career. But underneath the patterns and the problems that were showing up in their life were deep wounds from childhood, usually deep wounds with their father. 
So this brings me to the last piece, which is, you know, one in four kids in America are going to grow up without a father figure in the household. And statistically, pretty much all the research shows the same thing, which is that it will impact girls. There's some areas that'll impact girls, but it's generally not going to impact her development or her capacity to do well in school, academically, et cetera, relationally with, with other girls. But young boys will really get hammered. And so we start to see that 88% of runaways are from fatherless homes. And something like 82% of kids that have learning disorders or that are impacted, you know, ADHD, these types of things, they come from fatherless homes. Kids that drop out of school, it's 90% of kids that drop out of school come from fatherless homes. And the vast majority of the kids in this data are young boys. And so young boys are really impacted by not having a father figure around. And the problem is that the definition of absent father is pretty wide. It's not just not having a father present. Absent father can be your father's an addict, your father's a workaholic, your father has to travel a lot for work. Your father has um, mental illness. Your father has mental illness. Yeah, your I mean, father I is absent father because of that. Yeah, your father's emotionally absent. You know, so maybe he's there, but he just will not talk about mm -hmm. anything. So this really has a dramatic impact on young boys who then become men um, who just have a an oftentimes a very unconscious mistrust of men, but also a very deep seated. What I've seen in my own work over the last decade with tens of thousands of guys is a mistrust in themselves as a man and this sort of fear that they're going to become a man that is untrustworthy or not respectable like their father so those are the main <laughs> those are the main pieces if a man deep in his psyche is unable to trust himself and has an unconscious fear of turning out like his absent father then that would be one of the drivers that would lead him to excessive pornography, consumption, alcohol, drugs, all of that. Talk to me about pornography as well as I think Instagram and social media in many ways is like the acceptable pornography, depending obviously mm. on who and what you follow and yet it's acceptable. So I wanna hear your thoughts about that. And I wanna also hear your thoughts on, cause this is gonna be very important for listeners. For someone who's in a relationship with a man who is consuming a lot of porn or following a lot of provocative accounts, what can they say to their partner? To me, it's a red flag if you start dating someone and what you discover within the first six months is that they're engaging in all these provocative accounts. That's all they follow. They watch a lot of porn. My advice is don't go any further. Like life is long as fast as it goes and relationships are mm. you know, labor intensive enough. Why do you want to get involved in that? But sometimes you're in a relationship and then it, you know, this comes up or everything else is great and then you're noticing these things. So I think that it's a really big problem. Where's the line between recreational porn watching, normal, quote unquote, versus where it crosses a line 
And how does someone actually say to their partner, this is a problem? Like, how do they lay down that boundary? It's a big question. There's a couple different pieces to this. I'm going to I'm going to say a few things and then we'll find some very clear direction. First and foremost, I was one of those guys, just in full transparency. I wrote about this in the book. I wrote a whole chapter on pornography and I did that to share my story in a non-shaming way. I think a lot of the stuff that's out there that talks about porn and that's trying to talk to men because there's a lot of content that talks about men. There's much less content that's talking directly to men. One of the things that I started to notice is that a lot of the conversation around pornography was talking about how men shouldn't be watching it and how it's not good for men. And for a lot of guys, what that does is it just creates a battle, creates shame. It creates the like, you can't tell me what to do. You know, I'm going to try and find evidence to prove you wrong. And so it turns more into a debate than anything else. And so in my book, I share my story and then how I actually stopped watching porn because I was what would be classified as a chronic user in my 20s and my late teens. Um, it really was a stop? problem. I mean, I know it's in your book and I want people <laughs> to get your book. Can you give us the Reader's Digest version? <laughs> Let me circle back around because I want to say a couple other things and we'll come sure. back. So, you know, recently I interviewed this male porn star and I said, what would you tell your son about pornography having been in the porn industry? And he said, I would tell him that it's fake and that it's entertainment and not to bother. So... First and foremost, we have to understand that porn is just entertainment. Second, what I found to be super helpful is understanding why you as a man are using porn. Here's what's interesting is that chronic usage is defined as more than twice a week. So if you're watching porn more than twice a week, you're considered a quote unquote chronic user. What if you're watching it with um, your partner? Is this this is dependent on being alone and watching it or with a partner or either? Yeah. Okay, that's that's solo. So what I've noticed for a lot of guys and myself included was when I was using pornography, I was using it for, and I didn't know this at the time, but I was using it, as I would say now, to regulate my nervous system. Mm-hmm. So when I was feeling stressed or lonely or bored or angry or yeah. frustrated or there was some argument in my relationship that I didn't want to deal with, Porn was just the easy reset button, right? Because you watch porn, you get off, you climax, your brain releases dopamine, you feel better, and away you go. Mm-hmm. You also, I mean, I don't know if this is the same for men, I would imagine, but for women, you orgasm gets rid of a lot of excess cortisol, which is the stress yes. hormone. Yeah, in a man's body, after you climax, you actually will release prolactin. Mm. So your body will actually release prolactin, which for women, it serves a very different function But for men, prolactin is actually a chemical that's designed to help us relax and relax into our parasympathetic part of our nervous system. And so it can be quite alluring to continue to go back to pornography and get this feel good while relaxing, right? Feel good, relax. That's why men fall asleep so quickly after (laughs) ejaculation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) And we just want to talk. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> You're like, oh, I want a pair bond. And we're like, oh, we, I want to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to die now. Yeah. I can yeah. die now. So, yeah. That's it. That's it. The little tiny death. A lot of men are using it for that function and don't really know it. So one of the things that I outlined in my book was one, not all men, but many men have a porn routine. So they watch it at a certain time in a certain place. They watch, you know, a specific type of porn 
and they watch it when they are feeling something specific. And so one of the things that I started to do was every time I wanted to go watch porn, I would set a timer and I would sit down for three, five, seven minutes and I would just close my eyes and I would ask myself, what am I feeling right now? What am I actually experiencing right now? And what I started to tune into is that, you know, 80, 90% of the time I wasn't aroused. I was feeling something that I didn't know how to deal with. I was overwhelmed. I was overstressed. I couldn't shut my mind up. You know, I was just constantly thinking about all the stuff that I had to do. And porn became this way to help me shift out of this sympathetic dominant part of my nervous system, which is stress, aka stress, to a more parasympathetic dominant operating within my nervous system, which is relaxation. And so for a lot of guys, just doing that very simple thing can start to give them insight into like, oh, actually, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling angry. And like, oh, do I really want to watch porn just because I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling mm -hmm. overwhelmed? So that can be a really helpful interject to interrupt the pattern because porn watching is just, it's like a Pavlovian response, right? It's just a behavioral pattern that you have started to latch onto. And over the years, if you're not somebody that's just using it once a month for fun here and there, if you're somebody that's like scrolling through Instagram and the bikini shots and the you know, looking at the accounts of all this scantily clad women, et cetera, et cetera, and then going and watching porn, and you're doing this on a almost daily basis, that has become a behavioral pattern that is ingrained into your system. And so you need to slowly unwind that pattern and that behavior just like you would any other type of addiction. The last piece that I'll say is porn is a pseudo attachment. And so for a lot of men who are lonely, and a lot of men are lonely, when they are feeling that loneliness is when they'll feel the pull towards porn the strongest. And so it's very challenging at first because a lot of men don't want to see it. I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to notice that most of the time I was turning to pornography because I felt alone in some capacity. So porn creates this pseudo attachment, right? As an example, 2021, OnlyFans did $4.8 billion in revenue. And the majority of that revenue is from men. And the top earning accounts are, you know, not necessarily like the most attractive women. What they found was that the top earning accounts are actually women who are creating what's called girlfriend experiences, GFEs. And so these women figured out that what gets men to pay more money and to engage with them on a regular basis is not just sending them salacious content of body parts or whatever activity that men is wanting to pay for, but actually creating some type of relationship or attachment. Hmm. And so a lot of men are actually turning towards pornography as a type of connection, mm -hmm. as a type of, I want some type of relationship right now or some type of relating. I want some type of attachment or closeness. And the challenge is that our brain can't really tell neurologically the difference between watching somebody on the screen and having somebody there in real life. So it kind of gets tricked pretty easy. And so a lot of guys will use pornography as a form of like a pseudo attachment where for a brief period of time, it can trick us into feeling like we have some type of 
connection with that woman, whether it's purely sexual or it's more emotional and relational. And I think the insidious thing about what's coming is that AI is about to really mess stuff up in the porn industry in the sense that, you know, a man will in a year's time or tomorrow go on to OnlyFans and and really be able to interact. Yeah. And what he'll be engaging with is video content that's been AI generated, Mm -hmm. photographic content that's been AI generated. And when he's interacting with somebody in the chat, it'll be an AI chatbot. So it'll be this type of removal where that man will be even more isolated. He won't even be talking to a human being on the other side. He'll be talking exclusively to an AI chatbot of that person. So that's coming. And I think that's going to affect men. It's going to affect women, you know, women who want a relationship with a man who knows what to say to them and who knows how to talk to them. And, you know, if you have some emotionally intelligent man that creates a chatbot version of himself that women can go and interact with, it's going to be very lucrative because women will start to engage and interact with this chatbot version of a man online who's very sensitive and kind and caring and knows exactly what to say and when to say it and gives validation. And it's going to be very enticing. And that's going to be the sort of emotional pornography that's going to get produced for women. So I think that the porn industry is about to really expand in ways that we should all be paying attention to. And also the paradox is that these women are making so much money tapping into this. But what they don't realize is that their work is actually making men weaker and weaker. Yes. And turning them into men who no woman actually would ever really want. I agree 100%. And I think what's interesting is that as men within our culture have become weaker in the sense that they're not tapped into their own sense of their masculine nature. Maybe they're sort of apologetic for being masculine or even being male. What has started to happen is that there's less men out there who kind of embody some of the traits physically, psychologically, emotionally that women are really aroused by and really turned on by and really want to be with. And so I was listening to this woman talk about, and she was a former escort, and she's now a sort of like data scientist. <laughs> Her name is Ayala. Yeah, very interesting character. Yeah. And she was saying that she put out a poll in a survey, which I replicated on my Instagram profile, because I think I've got like 175,000 people on there now, so it's a good, interesting data set. But she said, there are more women who want sexually dominant men than there are men who want to be sexually dominant. And so what was interesting is I put this survey out on my Instagram, and sure enough, what it came back with was that there were, I think about 2,500 men and 2,500 women went through it, and there were quite a few more women, like I would say 20 to 30% more women wanted a more sexually dominant man than there were men who were wanting to be sexually dominant. And so I think there's this discrepancy and you can see this in Tinder data that's starting to emerge where, you know, the majority of women are going after a very small select group of men and, you know, 50% of men that are on Tinder or dating apps really get no attention whatsoever. So I think that there's this divide that's starting to happen. And part of it is that men 
are needing to step back towards sort of a, a reclamation of their own masculinity, their own masculine nature. And part of it is, you know, that needs to be revalued within our culture in a healthy way, not in a way of like supremacy or dominating or yeah, any of course. those things. So, yeah, I know I kind of went off from no, the it's porn, very so. No, it's very interesting. And it, it's hard not to get a little frightened by what's to come, you know, because it, it just seems like a recipe for more and more people not getting their needs met. I think that at the end of the day, what's really important for everyone is that everyone needs a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. Everyone needs community. If we were to like to peel away the onion over and over and over again, these are the two things that regardless of man or woman, this is what every human being needs in order to feel more powerful, to heal it's kind of like the answer for everyone. And it looks different mm. depending on who you are, but I think it's really quite important. How come so many guys can act like your boyfriend, but they're not, and they have no interest in being your boyfriend? I call this cuttlefish syndrome. Okay. Um, and I do want to go back and answer your question about, you know, how does a woman approach a oh boyfriend yes the communication we, we should we definitely do, shouldn't why leave why that why don't we go to that first and then i'll and then i'll we'll come back to sure this. and then we'll talk yeah. about cuttlefish yeah yeah you know i think one you need to have some parameters and boundaries around it you need to decide what role you want porn to play in your relationship as a woman and where it fits in and what you're good with and you know what you're not good with if you're dating somebody and pornography is something that all of a sudden comes up and that he's watching a lot of, or you can tell that he's sort of, and you can see through his Instagram or, you know, whatever social media he's on that he's following a lot of accounts that are pretty salacious in nature and, and maybe don't feel great. I would say the first place to begin is a place of curiosity rather than saying, I won't tolerate this or I won't put up with this or don't do that. I would ask him very directly for what purpose do you follow these accounts? Why? What are you actually getting out of it? Mm -hmm. And see what he says, because he's probably never really been asked that question, and it's probably just something that he's always done. You know, if you're a bachelor and you're in your early 20s and you have time on your hands, look, How about in your social 40s? media. I mean, I'm talking about men yep. in their 40s. <laughs> sure, yeah, there's, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter, 30s, 40s, 50s. You go on social media, the algorithm's very quick to adjust. And if you start watching certain content, it's going to start to serve that up to you in droves. And so very quickly, your entire social media can be turned into bikinis and butt shots and you're sort of lost. So I think just asking that question of why do you watch this content? Why do you view this? Like for what purpose and what do you get out of it? And then same question with porn what's your relationship to pornography? Do you need it? Is it something that is a must for you? Is this something that you've just always used? Or is this just something that you used while you were single and now you don't know how to let go of it? I think having those types of non-aggressive, non-attack-oriented conversations can oftentimes be very helpful because I think what a lot of men are used to is the attack-oriented conversation of like, you shouldn't be watching this and what's wrong with you and 
you know, what does this say about me and all that type of stuff. Or the insecurity forward conversation. Yes, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. And so I think we need to destigmatize these conversations and have them in a much healthier, grounded way when possible. And, you know, if that man comes back and says, this is just what I like doing, I don't think there's a problem with it. All the research around pornography is bullshit. Then, you know, maybe you have some decisions to make about the relationship and how. Or he's dismissive about her concern, you know? Right. Yes. Or, or if he's dismissive about it and it's just like, this is ridiculous. I can't even believe that you're asking me about this. Yeah. I think then that's a time to really assert your values and your beliefs yes. about yourself and about your relationship and specifically about your sexual connection. Because what I've seen happen for a lot of relationships is that porn becomes the mistress in the relationship. It becomes the thing that one of the partners, the man or the woman, predominantly the male, but the man or the woman is turning to when there's sexual disconnection or there's arguments or they want to explore something sexually, but it's, you know, it's a little mm-hmm. at the fringe or the edge and it's uncomfortable and it just becomes the cure-all. And so I think if the guy's dismissive, then you can really assert, listen, this is a value for me. I value having our sexual integrity within the relationship. I want you to be able to bring to me what you want to explore. I want to be able to bring to you what I want to explore and experience. And it's also not okay for me that that this happens on an ongoing basis. So I think we should talk about this. And that might be a deal breaker, you know? Mm-hmm. That might be. For me, I think I've gotten to a place in life where I was hesitant to say it directly for a while, but now I'm just not, where porn is just not necessary unless you and your partner have decided that's something that you want to use as a tool to explore, you know, to experience, to expand, to whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But for the average individual, for the average guy, it's not going to benefit or add to your life. I promise you, in the long run, it is going to be a detriment. And so I think a lot of men are really starting to come around to that, Mm -hmm. but it's also taking the soother away. So (laughs) if you're somebody that smokes weed every once in a while to like, quote unquote, relax, and then somebody comes along and you start dating and they're like, hey, I would prefer that you don't smoke weed, that's going to be a hard one to, Mm -hmm. to navigate. So Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that it's important, like you said, to reiterate for everyone that behind every habit that perhaps you don't want to have, there's actually an emotional pattern that's driving it. And that anything that we do, whether we use food, whether we use alcohol, whether we use pornography, what our unconscious is actually striving to do is to create a shift in our physiology from something that is uncomfortable in the nervous system to something that's more relaxed. Typically, that's what it's used for. I mean, we you, we also do things to make a shift in our physiology to create more energy. But typically, mm-hmm. these sort of addictive habits are where we're using something, we're using these things to self-soothe. And that really, the work is to understand the chronic stress and the emotional pattern that is leading to that, the self-pity or the anger or the going back and forth between anxiety and depression all these things which can be symptomatic of a belief system, symptomatic of feeling divorced from friends and family, 
It could be a number of things. But at the end of the day, that's what we have to look at to heal. So back to cuttlefish <laughs> or cuttlefish. <laughs> yeah, what was the question again? Why do you? Yeah, so how come guys will act like they're your boyfriend, but they don't want to be your uh-huh. boyfriend? There's this saying online, and we could debate whether or not it's true or not. I think for the most part, it's relatively true, okay? It's a general truth. It's not an absolute truth. But the statement is that women are the gatekeepers of sex and men are the gatekeepers of commitment. <laughs> so generally, men want to, men who are looking for some time, and I'm going to say this in a, maybe a sort of crude or clinical way at first, and then I'll explain where cuttlefish fit in. Men that are, are looking to get sex or acquire sexual connection are going to use a bunch of tools at their disposal. And women that are trying to get relationships and commitment from a man that they really want to be with will use a bunch of tools at their disposal. Not always the most forthcoming tools. So in nature, there's something called a cuttlefish. And there's this traditional sort of hierarchy where the males will sort of battle it out and then the females will select their companion to go and mate with and then they'll go mate. And the smaller male cuttlefish that can't partake in the battle or can't win the battle have this very different tactic where they'll actually come in and they will they'll pretend to be female. So they'll actually alter their body structure, their facial structure, their coloring, they'll alter the whole thing, and it'll trick the male into thinking that it's another female that wants to mate with him. And what he'll do is he'll allow that male to go in with the female, and then that smaller male cuttlefish will then, right underneath the bigger one's nose, will mate with the female. And it's a way of sort of bypassing the sort of infrastructure that's in the mating system. And how this plays out with men is that a lot of guys will feign interest. They will feign being something that they're not in order to acquire what it actually is that they're looking for because they don't think that they can get it by being direct. They don't think, oh, I can actually just get the sexual connection that I'm looking for by being upfront and by being direct and by just telling you that I actually don't want a relationship. I'm just looking to have sex with you. And so what they'll do is they'll feign a kind of relational interest and they'll send all the right cues. Usually these are nice guys, right? Like usually these are the nice guys that are like, they're very nice. They're very forthcoming. You know, they take you on the dates. They say the nice things. They connect emotionally. And that happens. And then you start to enter into territory where it seems like there's a relationship happening and then they, they peace out or they start to shut down. So that's the cuttlefish analogy. Wow. <laughs> Is that they, they're changing and altering their presentation in order to get what it is that they actually want or need. But it makes sense because I don't know how much sex they would get if they said, look, I don't want a relationship with you. I just want sex. Because <laughs> most right. women would say, well, I want the relationship. Yeah. So that's the dance, right? That's the dance. And the guys are that's- the ones normally at the end of the day that are saying like, yeah, I want to be in relationship with you or no, I'm not interested. Yeah. And so that's the dance that happens between most men and women and on the other side, sometimes are women who will try and use and leverage sex in order to get into relationships. Yes, I and know, which is never, it never works. It's never a good idea. Yeah. So that's 
part of the reason why they do it. I think the other piece is there can be some men that are just genuinely afraid of getting into a vulnerable position. So they might be interested in the beginning. And I've worked with a number of men who have experienced this where they are interested, they are attracted, they start to get emotionally connected. And then some kind of threshold gets crossed emotionally in the relationship as it's developing. And they start to shut down. Yeah, where something goes off within him and he becomes afraid or feels trapped or feels like his freedom is Mm -hmm. starting to be infringed on. Mm -hmm. And so what can be very helpful is sometimes checking in and using some of that language. Do you feel like you still have your own sense of freedom in your own life as we're building this relationship? We're two months in. Do you feel like you have your own sense of freedom? Do you you feel like you have your own sense of autonomy or sovereignty. Uh-huh. You know, you have to find your own language for this, but sometimes asking those questions can help to open the valve for that guy to say, actually, I've been feeling really like infringed on and I don't know why, or I'm feeling like we're going really quick, or I feel like we've been spending a lot of time together and I want to make sure that I have some solo time. It can be complicated because that very man could be very afraid of disappointing his partner or this person who he's seeing and he could want to please this person he could also be feeling all these feelings but not really understanding them so not being able to communicate about them and then that what that usually does to someone on the receiving end is it it just instills a lot of panic because it's like what do you do with that you know, and then mm-hmm. you have thoughts like, okay, well, then you're emotionally unavailable or you're just not really that into me. And look, I think it takes a lot of maturity to be in a relationship. Yes. It just takes a lot of maturity to be in a committed relationship. It takes emotional intelligence. It takes courage. It takes maturity. And some people are up for the challenge and some are not or need a lot of work before they are, you know? And I think that, you know, people are always asking me, well, how do you know? Like, how long do you wait for someone to be ready? And there's no easy answer. It's like, okay, has it been two months or has it been a year? Do you love this person? Or are there there other things that you're just seeing that are not working? Like, it's so individual, you know, and can be very difficult when you're ready to do the work that is a relationship, like the commitment and the dedication. And someone is, you know, all of a sudden feels like they're trapped by emotional intimacy. Well, I think, you know, I think one of the questions that I usually encourage people to bring into dating within the first month or two of dating somebody is to ask something along the lines of what purpose do you think a relationship serves? Hmm. Just what purpose, because it's a very masculine-oriented way, right? The masculine within us is very focused in on purpose and function and order and structure. And logic. And so, and logic. And so sometimes it's nice to just have that question where a guy can say, huh, what is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever really thought about what the purpose is or, you know, for him to say, you know, I think part of the purpose is to grow together or I think part of the purpose is to understand ourselves better or i think part of the purpose is to have ease and adventure together so you'll get a sense sometimes of where that other person is at based on the response that they give if you know this is assuming that they're being somewhat forthcoming and transparent yeah, and they're not exactly. sort of trying to withhold all of their cards right look if somebody's trying to dupe you 
and they're good at it, and there are lots of people that are out there that are yes. good at duping people, it's going to happen. Yeah. Not that that's like a very cheery note to end that answer with. <laughs> I mean, and we all have to become, you know, smarter. And, you know, for women in particular, sex is a big one. I think if you attach quickly after sex, I think waiting is really important, right? To make sure that someone doesn't want just sex from you. Because mm. people think, you know, they're so into me or they love bombing me. It's like some people actually don't know how to process their enthusiasm for someone maturely mm. and they get very ungrounded. I think that love bombing is when you're trying to get someone into bed, basically. You're <laughs> weaponizing your compliments and all that really to get someone into bed. And I think that at the end of the day is really what I think so many people are sort of like afraid of. But there are ways to know if someone is just interested in sleeping with you versus being interested in you. And yeah. and one of the ways is to remove sex from the table for, for a little while. Any parting thoughts? I could talk to you for hours because I have so many questions, but I want to be respectful of time. <laughs> is there any anything that you want to add to this conversation today? I think I'd be honored to do part two at some point and rapid fire through a bunch of those questions because I yes. find that sometimes I can go into depth on them. But no, I think I would probably just wrap with saying two things. One, I've worked with tens of thousands of guys over the years, and there are a lot of really great men out there. There are a lot of really great men out there. There's a lot of great men who are very wounded and very hurt, and they're doing their part to try and you know, work with that. There's a lot of great men that know exactly what they want. And so I would just say in maybe a sea of nonsense that can happen in online dating, it can maybe sometimes feel a little hopeless. I would say go out in person, go out in person, go talk to people in person, go meet men and women in person, talk to the people in your grocery store and at coffee shops and at yoga and, and like wherever you are. If or you go are to single, an event where you know the people that you want to date are going to be, even if it's not a topic that right. you're particularly interested in. Honestly. Yeah. yeah, go there. And the more that you do that, the more you're going to meet people that are aligned with you, meet people through friends, like just really try and be in person with people. And, and I think that's going to be the best thing. We've relegated a lot of our human connection I mean, what is it? 80% of communication is through body language. Yes. So when you're trying to get a feel for somebody virtually, it can be incredibly deceiving. Yes. And so get with somebody in person so that you can feel their energy, you can feel their presence, you can you know be around them. I know the dating world is really hard right now. I hear it from a lot of people. I know it's a bit of a shit show. And so I think the last thing that I would just try and advocate for is putting down the weapons between men and women. Like I, I think that the quote unquote gender war that's been happening for a long time is not serving people to find good, healthy relationships because they are coming into relationships now so cluttered with all of these stories about men and about women and about how Absolutely. they act and about how they are Your or about how they need to be. Everything. Yes. And it's just like you're carrying in briefcases and suitcases of Ugh. stuff, you know, totally. about men in general or women in general. And then the person in front of you is barely getting a shot to show you who they really are. Yes. And so I would say, just check all that stuff, you know, put it all to the side. Don't listen to all the bullshit that's out there and just really authentically 
start to take the risk to show people who you are and they will start to show you who they really are. And as you do that more and more boldly and more and more courageously, the person you are meant to be with will arrive and the people that you are not meant to be with will fade away. I promise you. Amen. I agree 100%. Thank you for adding that. Thanks Connor, for where me. can people find you? Instagram at Mantalks. That's just M-A-N-T-A-L-K-S. Getting men to talk. And then my website is mantalks.com. And then I have my book, Men's Work, which is really a powerful guide for men to go through. But it's also, I've had a ton of women that have gone through the book and I've been very grateful because they understand men at a much deeper level. And it'll give you, if you're a woman listening to this, it'll give you insight into the type of work that men can and will need to dive into at some point in their life. So it's a very clear indicator. So it's just called Men's Work and you can get it on Amazon or any bookstore. And how often do you lead retreats? A number of times a year. Okay. Yeah, usually anywhere from four to seven. I'll do men's weekends. My wife and I will do couples workshops. We'll do solo retreats and stuff like that. So yeah, lots. Wonderful. <laughs> well, they can it. all find that information on your site, yes? Yeah, mentalks.com, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Thank you for being here. It was a lovely chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this. I cannot wait to hear your comments and your questions. Please feel free to reach out to me at hello at jillianonlove.com. And I can guarantee that I, that you know many people who need to hear this. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your friend's who's, you know, just recently started dating someone. So you never know whose life you could be impacting by just hitting send. Until next time, thanks for listening. Jillian on Love is a Q Code production, executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson, produced by Ryan Countshouse, edited in music by Will Tendy. Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Nene Leakes, Teresa Judai, and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade. And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday.